Hey there, underhand free throw shooters. It's Ian. Um, I'm just doing one of these little playoff check-ins because obviously even though we recorded this morning, things are going to change every hour because it's the playoffs and that's what's fun about them. So as you can maybe hear in the background, I'm actually watching game one of Boston versus Philly. It's 108-107 Philly with about three minutes and 30 seconds left. And this game is a whole lot more fun than we make it sound in this podcast episode. So just so you know, uh, none of our analysis uh, happened before this game. Harden and Maxi are making it a little bit more spicy than we thought. And um, by the time you're listening to this, game two of uh, Nuggets Suns will happen. That should be a fun one. So everybody enjoy. And I'm going to get back to watching the end of this Philly-Boston game. Welcome to the underhand free throw it's a second round nba playoff podcast with ian and simon i'm ian and i'm simon we should have known uh curry was saving it for game seven (laughs) yeah it's we just learned last night the warriors are going to be in the second round of the playoffs just Mm -hmm. as we both predicted and pretty much everyone else (laughs) yeah not not exactly a hot take there but yeah second round is set yeah we got a fifth sixth seventh and eighth seed all in the second round and we're reco- we actually have all all eight seeds. Yeah, isn't, isn't that nice? Isn't that every single every single team is a different seed in the second round? I think it's the first time in NBA history that's ever happened. This is a big win for you know early education teachers who can now you know use oh, the yeah. playoffs to teach their kids um, numbers one through ten. Uh, could also be used to great effect in ESL classes, early intro level of learning letters and numbers. So this is a big moment for the NBA becoming more accessible in early education all over the world. <laughs> That's the best way to learn your your base 10 counting, in my opinion. Yeah. So we are recording this on the 1st of May, uh, you know, sort of early in the day, which means by the time that you're listening to this, we're probably going to have another game from Denver and Phoenix and the beginning of the Boston Philly series. That's pretty cool. Yep. Um, we just watched the Warriors assert the championship experience to win game seven in Sacramento, which means the beam will not be lit again this season. Uh, and we already have game one from, you know, we have Denver sunning the Suns in game one. Uh, Heat overcoming a Jimmy Butler ankle sprain to steal home court advantage from the Knicks. Um, And yeah, how are we feeling about the second round, Simon? Do you mind if I call you a second round Simon for the duration of this podcast? That's all right. I will say uh, the beam was not lit, but uh, Steph was calling for it to be lit. (laughs) End of game seven. So yeah, I guess uh, the first time we've seen a rival team uh, call for the the beam lighting ceremony to continue. Yeah, well, I mean that's that's insulting on one hand, but it's also a tribute to what a successful gimmick that was all year. Like everyone loved that gimmick. Like, yeah, um, everyone wants the beam lit, and that in- includes their uh, their conquerors. I definitely saw some memes with the beam being lit yellow. You know, low hanging fruit, yeah. but uh, some of them were. I will fun say videos. like. I, I'm very much a fan of Steph Curry and, and Clay Thompson, but um, there 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 was to me just like a little bit too much hype and celebration from the Warriors for barely squeaking through a first round series against uh, you know what what all of Vegas and most fans saw as an inferior opponent. So um, it would have been cool to see them just just you know take things a step down, maybe save save some of that. Uh, hype and celebration for a little bit later in the playoffs and kind of act like you've been there before because they have i mean nba teams nba players have no have a infinite ability to like take slights and paint themselves as the underdog so i hear a lot of uh warrior talk about like you know y'all forgot about us or like you know it's not time to turn the page on our 
on this Warriors yeah. team. Like you're all excited about the next new thing. Like we're still here. A lot of that. I think if I think if you don't like the war, if you're a Warriors hater or just have not enjoyed their run of dominance, which is totally fair, you can uh, like or dislike whatever teams you want. I think Steph and Clay represent the kind of like preppy popular boys of the NBA, like the like the summer club, like yeah, sort of to some extent deck shoes, like collars popped, like they've got dorky insults, but like they they keep beating you, so the insult they just makes the insults sting that much worse i feel like that's kind of their brand i don't have a hate on for steph and clay but i can see it i can understand um the animosity that they um have attracted over their a hundred years of of winning yeah yeah not quite that much but it does feel like they're getting there um yeah i don't know i mean it was a good series we're mostly just going to talk about second round here Hmm. um not necessarily what has happened already uh as I'm sure we've all heard plenty of that, but, um, you know, it was just, I thought game seven for the most part just came down to the experienced and, and the more experienced, more veteran team. I mean, this isn't always the case, like having veteran players and lots of experience doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be awesome and you're going to win. But, um, it definitely seemed like this game seven was one example of that. Uh, the Kings just kind of looked woefully prepared and the execution was pretty poor, especially in the second half of that game. Yeah. I mean, I think we, I think we had conversations similar to this in, in the lead up where um, like if this series was going to go to seven games, it would mean that Sacramento was very good. But if it got to seven games, there would be uh you, you like the Warriors in a long series just because of that experience where, and you could see it by the end. And this is such a thing in the playoffs. You get to the end of a long series and either yeah. one or both teams at that point feel at their end. Like Mike, like Mike Brown felt like he was kind of grasping at straws and not trusting like key players in his rotation and just sort of like searching for things that are out of desperation and, you know, maybe and hoping to stumble on something. But you, you could see that like the uh, the Kings felt more locked into their strategy where the Warriors felt like they were kind of just doing their thing still. So it, it felt yeah. kind of inevitable um like as the as it came into that game seven that the warriors were gonna have a big advantage that being said a one game thing anything can happen like i don't know demontis sabonis could have just got super hot from mid-range or something like that and but who knows anyways let's 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 we're gonna come back and talk about golden state a bunch more we're gonna not talk about sacramento but let's quickly bounce over to a series that we do know a little bit about because we've seen game one of the denver nuggets versus the phoenix suns what are your initial thoughts on on that did you watch the first game uh i watched a portion of it yeah um I have a hard time watching full games right now just with my work schedule and everything. But um, from what I did see, which was the second half, which is really when the Nuggets turned things on um, and starting just they started just really expose, uh, I thought, Phoenix's lack of ability to rotate properly. Um, Lots of open corner threes, uh, lots of suns out of position um, and Jamal Murray just blowing by Chris Paul. But I did think that it's kind of a thin razor's edge margin with the Suns because they have a pretty high baseline level of offensive competence um, just with Booker and Kevin Durant's creation ability, but they don't really, it doesn't quite feel like they have that, you know, exp- explosivity that the Nuggets have. Um, explosivity. I like that, that word. <laughs> I think except expl- these other teams in the playoff format have, you know, I I've tried to kind of defend the Suns, the Suns bench a little bit leading into these playoffs being like, yeah, it's not great, but they're not that bad. They have some solid players. But 
you know, their stars have to be pretty consistently great on a night-to-night basis just to make that offense, you know, competent. Yeah, I felt coming out in the first half, I mean, both teams looked like they were going to have a really easy time scoring. It felt like an early mm-hmm. firefight. It was really exciting. This is one of the rare games I was able to convince my girlfriend to watch the whole thing with from me. I was just like, it's going to be really fun. Both these teams are really fun to watch. And they didn't disappoint. They came out scoring a whole bunch. Um, and then as the game kind of ground on, ground on Denver just kept kind of pulling away and then after the game I read that like John Hollinger just came out with a really good article I think it was called like does Phoenix have a math problem available to read on the athletic and just pointing out like if Phoenix wants to just keep taking a early 2000s like shot chart of taking tons and tons and tons of mid-rangers Denver's gonna keep shooting threes and you're gonna end up playing NBA jam where that where the other player knows to spam pull up three pointers and that they're They're gonna on fire and that's really like in a very simple way that's just what happened like obviously as the game went on Phoenix lost a little bit of of steam and got frustrated as they just couldn't seem to close the gap and their offense fell apart a little bit more but like for a lot of it, it was just like it seems like you're both scoring. So why is Denver up 17 all of a sudden? It's like oh, because you're sh- shooting well, threes all the I th- time. I thought um, I thought Denver had some advantages defensively as well. One thing that oh, I yeah. really loved that Michael Malone instituted um, is he has Bruce Brown kind of on the weakest perimeter shooter for the Suns, and he kind of just sneaks over and harasses Durant, yeah, um, or Booker when they're you know handling the ball in that mid range area. And he got, I think, at least three or four uh, strip steals mm-hmm. on Durant just while he was dribbling um, and really attacking Durant's handle, um, mm-hmm. which I think is going to be huge in the series. The Suns are going to have to find a way to work around that, whether that's having Durant create less often, um, maybe just come off of some pin down screens and mm-hmm. take shots rather than trying to manufacture his own looks. I think the Celtics really showed us something last year with the ability to really pick at Durant's handle. It's not that he's a bad ball handler. It's just that he's seven feet tall. <laughs> yeah. He dribbles pretty high off the ground. But yeah, Bruce Brown coming over and, and kind of blowing that action up, I thought was was really a big part of the Nuggets starting to pull away in the third quarter. Yeah, I was really curious going into the series what Denver was going to do with their base defense specifically to address Phoenix being pretty predictable and where they like to shoot from. And uh, what you're talking about is like the exact strategy, like have Bruce Brown basically swarm the nail. And that was, and that you could, you could tell that that's where the frustration started where like Phoenix just wasn't yeah. getting the clean looks they like. And I mean, you're bang on about uh, Durant's handle. Everyone loves to point out what an incredible ball handler he is for his height but yeah there are limits to what you can do when you're seven feet tall and have a kind of high handle like that and he gets as low as low low to the ground as he can but um when you're that big it's it's hard to get very low to the ground so i also thought that um mpj deserves a shout out for his defense like he's supposed to be the the most exploitable one in that starting lineup and he just kind of did the thing where it's like, I'm not that much smaller than Kevin Durant and I can contest his pull-ups. I'm not going to lock him down or anything like that, but it's, um, it's pretty functional to have me here in possessions where, and, and he's not the primary assignment there. Like Aaron Gordon's guarding, uh, guarding, uh, Aaron Gordon's guarding Kevin Durant. Um, whenever they 
like that being your second best Durant matchup, that matters. Having two guys that can at least like, you know, not get completely abused. Kevin Durant can kind of abuse any matchup, but like there's a big difference between making him work for his shots and, and giving him easy offense. I thought Bruce Brown also had a couple of like pretty impressive stand-ups in the post where they forced Kevin Durant into a tough shot. So their base defense looked really good. I'm really curious to see what Phoenix comes back with because I've never been a big truster of like Monty Williams coming up with really cool stuff to to mess up the other team. The time they got to the finals, it was more just like this is the most solid team uh, in, mm-hmm. in, the, in the Western Conference, especially after injuries. So um, they're going to want to adjust some things. And I, I kind of am curious, do you think they're going to come out and like spam threes or is Devin Booker and, and Kevin yeah, Durant specifically I, like you guys got to shoot from further away? <laughs> I think that's part of it. I think Tory Craig definitely needs to be in the starting lineup more, um, and they need to go to him more often, like whenever that corner three shot is open. Yeah, what um, do you think the thinking was there with bringing in Josh Okoji as uh, putting him into the starting lineup, especially after Tory Craig had such a like monster first round series for them? My only thought is maybe just to slow down Jamal Murray a bit, um, because like he was so incredibly successful at just really picking apart that Phoenix defense, yeah, um, especially with. DeAndre Ayton being a little bit reluctant to collapse and get back and defend the rim as he was in game one. Yeah. Um, I don't, I don't think there's much, they they really need Craig's shooting. Yeah. And I don't think there's that much stopping Jamal Murray. I think you have to let him stop himself. Like he's going to, he's not going to shoot like that every game. Like he, he's never shot like that. He has in the playoffs so far. Well, I mean, well he had, except on the road. Like he was a much different player on the road in those two games in Minnesota. He was still fine, but he wasn't like, I mean, when Jamal Murray scores like that, Denver's unstoppable because it's not just yeah. about guarding him one on one. It's like he he plays a two man game with Nikola Jokic and there's just no like he's going to get nice shots generated for him. Like he's going to work like there's the, like dribble handoff action, pick and roll like Jamal Murray is going to get those pull ups. There's not like what can you really do about that? He's paired with like one of the best screening big men in the NBA who's also the, like the best passing big man of all time it's just like those shots are not something that i don't know i just wouldn't put so much resources into like thinking you can shut down jamal murray because that's like it's kind of like putting like it's sort of what you said uh when we were talking the other day about throwing resources at stopping steph curry like you can you can try that but it might just mean that your entire defense implodes and at and the opponent gets good offense at the team level that that would be my sort of concern is that Jamal Murray's kind of, he's got that, he's sort of has this Kobe impression where his like, his scoring is really resilient when he's on, but he's also going to have yeah. nights where he shoots like, you know, seven for 20 or whatever and, and doesn't hurt you regardless of your game plan. So as someone who picked the Suns to win this series, um, and we, we haven't seen them play at home yet. We haven't seen Denver play on the road yet. Mm. Uh, we really do need to, it, even if the Nuggets win game two handily, we need to see game three, I think, before yep. we can definitively say, you know, Suns are in, in big trouble. Um, but one thing that worries me as someone who picked the Suns to win, well, A, is Devin Booker and Kevin Durant combining for four three-point attempts. That's just not enough. But also, uh, pretty much the entire starting lineup, um, maybe minus Josh Koji, but the four guys that you want to be impactful were all... I thought pretty solid offensively, at least from an efficiency standpoint. No one shot poorly. Um, I just thought, yeah, like the the lack of three-point attempts and then just the lack of getting really any significant scoring production at all um, from the rest of the team outside of those four were the two things that sunk the Suns. Um, so I think we're going to have to see, you know, definitely more threes attempted, 
we're gonna have to get i don't know i mean it doesn't have to be anything crazy but you know 15 points from craig um maybe a couple of threes from damian lee just just a little bit more juice off of the bench um and then ultimately i think for the suns to get there and really have a chance uh devin booker and katie both um probably have to have some pretty ridiculous games this series yeah, the I think the yeah. depth is really on display, and and no one went into these playoffs thinking Denver was going to be a team having a depth advantage, but now Denver's rotation looks like oh this is they a normal playoff rotation. In this series, <laughs> yeah, they it, it felt Maybe sometimes not against anyone else, but yeah, it felt like they were playing eight on four in this game. Like Denver had mm. eight useful players, and after after DeAndre Ayton, there's like a strong cutoff. Like like outside of their top four, they had like no one scored. I think Jock Lawndale was like their next leading scorer with like seven points, and um, that's probably not ideal. You know, like like do they miss? Campaign came back and and played for a minute. I don't know if he's gonna get back in the rotation, yeah, okay. but. I mean, he played five minutes, but like I, I'm sure they're gonna be looking for answers off their bench, and they looked a million times more confused than Denver did. I found that a little bit annoying during the regular season discourse because I think because Denver was leading for so long, everyone wanted to take like they're the only team that kind of like were a target. Everybody wanted to take them down a peg and and mm. critique them and everyone was talking about Denver's depth and at the same time saying how Phoenix was going to kill them. It's like, okay, but you could also look at Phoenix's weaknesses and like they've got much bigger depth concerns over there. But it's like you say, I do think that there are some functional players on that bench. I actually really like Tori Craig and Jossakoji. I don't think this is a good series for Bismack Biombo, which is a big problem for them because they don't really have a... That's why Jock was playing more. It's like Bismack Biombo is just not that big and not that like disciplined plined defensively like he's a really good rim protector but he's gonna get eaten alive by Nikola Jokic yeah he's matchup. a good ver- vertical athlete when are we gonna see Dominaton? that's what I want to know <laughs> Aiden claimed that uh he was going to become Dominaton, and uh he was <laughs> gonna be impactful on both sides of the floor and we really didn't see it in game one you know there's a lot of standing around there's a lot of flat footedness there's a lot of you know kind of looking around in in bewilderment as uh Jamal Murray dived to the rim yet again I, I just I remember this time two years ago when the Suns and the Nuggets played in a first round series or perhaps it was a second round series. second round um, second round series and Aiton was so good in his one on one defense against Jokic um, and gave Jokic the most difficult playoff series he's ever had Jokic still put up stats but you know wasn't efficient you know at least for his standards and I don't know if that was just like a contract thing that was the playoffs leading into the summer where. Aiton was eligible for his rookie extension. Um, so maybe that was the necessary motivation for him to play at that level. Um, but we haven't really seen it since. Um, so I'm just, that's what I'm left wondering and, and asking myself, where is that for the Suns? I just think that that, I just think DeAndre Ayton has been scouted better since then. I think he, I think his defense was a big surprise for people in that series um and in that in that whole playoffs like where he was just looking like the most defensively versatile big in the NBA with in terms of his mobility but i mean all next season and especially in those playoffs people find a way to very much pick on uh on on his defense i also think that phoenix had way better defensive infrastructure because jay crowder was still kind of good back then and could and could could body power forwards uh they had mikhail bridges um helping at the point of attack chris paul was just a lot better of a defender than he is now especially in terms of his sort of mobility so there's a lot more riding on uh deandre aiden i thought kevin duran actually had a decent defensive game in terms of offering some extra rim protection there but he did yeah he was really their rim protector yeah, 
Um, I also think that Nikola Jokic, Nikola Jokic in 2021, skinny Jokic has only been a thing for two seasons. And he's a much different player. He's a lot more mobile. And I know he still looks like a big, like clunky, goofy guy, but um, it's like, I, I have not seen him struggle against a player like that in a long time. That being said, like Nikola Jokic has not been scoring efficiently in these playoffs. Now in game one against Phoenix, he didn't really have to. It's kind of like Jokic yeah. loves to like chill and, and pass the ball and, and, you know, win with offense at the team level. But he actually started struggling at the, at the very end of the Minnesota series he had like his worst shooting game I've ever seen him have and then he didn't look great in game one so it might be a trend to pay attention to is like Nikola Jokic has not been shooting three billion percent from from like floater range uh for for a whopping sample size of two games now yeah no that's true um I mean we I guess we expect to see like you know 60 percent um effective field goal from Jokic and hasn't quite been that way (laughs) this this playoffs but it's not enough to really react to. The other thing I'd say about Aiton that you, you were saying earlier about with the Bruce Brown thing, Denver's overloading the nail, and that's going to hurt Aiton as much as it's going to hurt Durant and Booker. In fact, more so because that's like the only place Aiton really likes to score from is like not necessarily the nail, like maybe like a step or two inside, but he loves like launch floaters from there. And that's the help is there. Like they're they're really crowding that zone and that really destroyed Phoenix in round one. I'm sure they're going to come up with some better shot diversity. I also saw Aiton just like completely look off wide open corner, three shooters a lot in game one. Like, mm-hmm. you know, like he still got an okay shot, but it's like this Phoenix, it was just kind of a big part of Phoenix, not prioritizing three point shooting at all. But anyways, it's like you said, this series, we won't really know until game three. Phoenix has a lot of firepower, which means there's a lot they can throw at Denver and they're going to play better than this but obviously a great game one performance from from denver so you know they can be happy with that but they're gonna have to stay proactive to keep phoenix i think under wraps just because it's like phoenix can walk ass backwards into a into a you know 125 offensive rating in a game so uh you can't chill against this team i'm still holding out hope i think my pick still definitely has plenty of uh opportunity left um especially if Jokic. He's he's down to fifty seven percent true shooting for the playoffs, you know, which is like oh my around gosh. league average. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but for him is quite poor. So. I mean, most of that comes out of one game, right? Like, like he 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 shot like what he had like a he he missed a, a bazillion shots uh, in the la- in the closeout game against the Wolves. So um, yeah, but yeah, yeah, I'm trying to keep definitely something. If he, if he does it another game, I think it's time to start raising eyebrows more, but we're trying to stay on top of trends and, and warn you just in case it does become a trend, but it's not there yet. Yep. Yeah. Uh, let's go on to our next series. So this one, the next one we want to talk about was Lakers warriors, the series that the NBA wanted. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Good job. That, NBA. You got it. <laughs> probably. Uh, I think it's probably safe to say the majority of the, you know, fan base at large probably wanted to see this one. Mm-hmm. Um, Maybe the last time we'll see Steph and LeBron face off in the playoffs. Steph is four and one in those matchups, has an yeah. advantage. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, a better team so... in every single one of them. So I think it's still well, cool yeah, that LeBron got one. <laughs> Before we even get into really any like, you know, basketball X's and O's, whatever, like I just want to talk about some of the like the fun narratives here. There's just like like you already mentioned okay. the first one, like LeBron versus his old enemies is like it's too fun. Um, we've seen these guys play so much. Like, are we like let's dust off Andre Iguodala? Can we? <laughs> can we just like you know get him to foul LeBron a couple times just for old times' sake? Um, yeah. You mean the highest paid assistant coach in the NBA? Mm-hmm. 
There we go. They show him a lot. Like, they show him cheerleading on the bench and talking to guys. Like, I don't know if there's a, a, a conscious marketing effort of Igudala still matters, but uh, good, for, good for him. I, I, I doubt we will see him in the series, though. But there's some other little micro rivalries here. Kind of some weird, you know, uh, love triangles. First, you got Andrew Wiggins versus LeBron James. And this hasn't been much of a thing for a while. But remember that LeBron James forced the trade for Kevin Love. Like, yes. as soon as they drafted Andrew Wiggins, James showed up. There was about two weeks of wondering what, what that duo would be like. Or like, oh, Andrew Wiggins, does he get mentored by LeBron? And then like, nope, LeBron has no interest in playing in Wiggins. He's being shipped to Minnesota for Kevin Love. Um, and for a I while... was the first real uh, Lee GM move. That was like the first Lee GM moment. What's, oh, yeah, that's... that's um... Yeah, I'm trying to think. Was there one? Yeah, because in... in Miami, Pat Pat Riley was, was right. doing his yeah. own thing. He yeah. wasn't that's true. Stars run that franchise. The beginning of an era of of questionable. The the Kevin Love trade ultimately worked out, and but you always wonder how Wiggins yeah. Wiggins might like the Wiggins that we see now might have ended up getting there quicker if he was forced into the secondary role, playing sort of like a defensive utility gap attacker next to LeBron James and being a finisher, because that's the role that he plays in Golden State and everyone celebrates him for, and he's been so good in. And he might have actually just gone straight to that out of necessity if he was playing next to LeBron James. Yeah. Anyway, LeBron, or Wiggins used to, like, very clearly, like, you know, as someone who watched every Minnesota game, like, Wiggins would be bad, 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 bad. And then we get a game against Cleveland, and Wiggins just completely, like, comes alive. And he, I think he had, like, a 40-point game against LeBron in one of his first two seasons or something like that. Um, I like that. And then there's also that Wiggins uh, and D'Lo were traded for each other. And, yeah. and the D'Lo was, you know, kind of, like, discarded by the Warriors or so it was seen at the time, even though it ended up being a really great trade for them, you know. Delo's obviously moved on to the Lakers now, but so we got that. Like that's another. I like how they all all these matchups somehow have to do with Andrew Wiggins. You wouldn't have. Uh, I wouldn't have expected that, but I was. There's a lot of drama in there, and he's looked so good in the playoffs. Like he's looked like he's just really like thriving in Golden State. So, anyways, I'm liking a lot of that stuff. Yeah, I mean, we have some other former teammates. Um, you know, Vanderbilt was also. Nope. I don't know. Wait, no, no Vanderbilt no. was not a Wiggins teammate, right? We just have no, like a lot yeah. of Wolves connections between these two teams. But yeah. We're talking about different eras of the Wolves. It's true. It's okay. true. Yeah. I mean, I'll privately enjoy those, but I won't make people suffer through them on the podcast. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I'm the same way when I have former Blazers on teams. You know, like I, I can always recognize those guys. Um, tend yeah. to root for them. Yeah. Any good former Blazers in this series? I mean, we have Wenyan Gabriel um, <laughs> on the Lakers. <laughs> he was a Blazer for a hot second, but... Uh, I think yeah. that, that's about all I'm seeing here. You don't miss him? Yeah. I mean, it would be nice to have Wenyan Gabriel this season. I mean, we we're so desperate for a backup center of any kind. Mm. It would have been nice. You didn't you know, burn. Just a little bit of athleticism. You anyway, didn't... let's uh, <laughs> let's let's talk about uh, no, the actual basketball. Let's talk. Let's talk about Wenyan Gabriel for about 20 minutes, if that's okay with you. <laughs> he might uh, get some minutes in this series. We'll see. I mean, he played a little bit in the first round against. Uh, memphis but yeah one one initial question i have about this is is what you know after watching steph you know go for uh 50 points in a game seven and just sort of reminding all of us what level of star he still is that he's still firmly in his prime and still an mvp level player are ad and lebron still on that level because that's not how either of them looked in round not one consistently well, yeah, i'd say not ad not game. consistently lebron just like consistently was kind of mid in the first yeah. round 
Not that I don't think LeBron can dial it up, but like he shot 19% from three or something. And just also like did not look quite as kind of capable of, of just putting the team on his back when he needs. Now, maybe we will see that, but it's like, I think it should at least be a question just because he's 38 years old. Like you just can't expect him to keep doing that forever. And he hasn't done it since his, um since his foot injury late in the season, he's looked just a little bit more slow and he already looked a little bit more slow than he has from his prime. So I don't, I don't know. It'll be, it's definitely like an interesting series to see like, does LeBron James still got it? Not got it. Like, is he a good player? Like got it? Like what's his, what's the, what's the ceiling of a LeBron James performance or, you know, expected possible ceiling. Yeah. I mean, as bad as his three point shot is, his um, overall true shooting percentage is about the same as Jokic. <laughs> he's he's almost as efficient as the least efficient version of Jokic we've seen in, in his career yeah, no my my bigger concern for lebron I, i'm sure he's not going to you know have some insanely efficient series and he'll have some nights where there are some you know maybe ill-advised uh pull up three-point shots that don't really have much of a chance of going in um but i'm a little bit more concerned with his uh kind of defensive versatility um you know, you gotta you gotta really stay on your toes against this Warriors team, um, and rotate. And against Memphis, LeBron could kind of get away with not doing that just because of the overall poor quality of the outside shooting. Whenever Luke Kennard wasn't on the floor, but you know, against the Warriors, like you got Steph and Clay, and and I know uh, that Jordan Poole hasn't necessarily been awesome. Often, you on. still don't want to give that guy wide open corner threes. Well, we talked about this in the in the first round matchup preview for Memphis and. And L.A., like Memphis, sorry, L.A. is a paint protection team. Like that's that's the core of their yeah. defense is like they can be. And, Le- and that's where LeBron brings defensive value still. He's very smart on the back line uh, when he can beat guys. He'll, he won't beat guys to spots with quickness anymore, but he'll like, you know, know where to be and be really he'll smart be and really yeah. strong. Um, and that was a big problem for uh, Memphis because they were a paint scoring offense that relied on like, a you know, like they were a battering ram. Golden State doesn't care. About Golden State, basket. yeah, they don't. They don't need paint scoring at all. They like they're like one of the only teams that can just be like we can actually skip out on paint scoring unless like you're gonna give it to us because we're very happy to like to just bomb you to death. And does and LA's not set up to do that at all. Like they like um like just just looking at the shot distribution of these defenses like. And it, it goes kind of back the other way, too, because the Warriors don't let people in the paint. They're number two in defensive shot distribution of the rim. So they're the number two team in stopping people from getting paint shots. And L.A. needs paint shots where the Warriors don't need to paint there. And that's like, yeah, 26th in, in rim shot distribution. Like that's that to me is like the big in terms of just matchup, like offenses versus defenses in this. Like that stands out to me as like a stylistic big red flag for L.A. in this. Yeah, I mean, the overall quality of the spacing has been pretty bad um, overall. Rui Hachimura has been their best three-point shooter in the playoffs thus far. Um, and then D'Angelo Russell is kind of number two and the only other guy who's been able to provide some kind of threat from outside the arc. And, and they're both about it on the Lakers roster. They're both so hot and cold, those two. Like, Yeah, both those know, guys are extremely inconsistent. Yeah. I mean, everyone's when it comes to the three-point shot, everyone's a little bit inconsistent. But those two are, I mean, do not have established track track, or like, I mean, especially Rui, like Rui was on fire in that first round matchup. You can't count on, he can definitely shoot. He's, he's shot well, especially on open threes. Um, 
you know, going back a couple of years now, I think he's a good shooter, but like you don't quite expect that level. And and D'Lo is just a, the last two seasons has been so notorious for his um up and down shooting and just looking like an all NBA guard at his best and looking like a you want him off your team at his worst kind of thing. Um, so mm-hmm. they're not there. There's there's not shooting on this roster to. I mean, Malik Beasley, we could see him playing more if uh, if the Lakers, you know, are trying to find ways to sort of go toe to toe. Yeah, and he's been pretty bad um, on Lakers just with his ability to shoot. But yeah, he's I'll... a guy who does have the have the ability in there somewhere. Yeah, are we gonna see like Jared Vanderbilt chasing Steph Curry around screens? Like, I'm just trying to think like how I would coach matchups in in this. Like, I think we're gonna have to. Yeah, you like wh- like you got re- a re- you got a really bad screen navigator in D'Angelo Russell. Like, he really wants to hang back behind screens. Like he's because he's never had the 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 speed uh or the focus to really do that kind man, of thing man after my own heart that's pretty much how i play defense why <laughs> through screens is hard you know yeah and, uh, yeah you also have to be especially in like in in, in pickup you have to the, the league i'm playing as you get older yeah. you don't want to wake up with a sore back you just <laughs> you can have that shot like screen defense is kind of violent it's like you do kind of have to yeah. to tussle a little bit you're not you're not just getting cleanly around screens you're like trying not to pick up an offensive or a, or a defensive foul yeah. and um especially with with looney and draymond there's quite a bit of uh, lateral movement um there's some elbows there's some hands grabbing shorts you know there's yeah. a lot that goes on there with trying to get around those screens i think of like when i think of some of the matchups in this like i do not feel very good about la like think about the players they can throw at lebron like he's going to be guarded by draymond green and andrew wiggins like you know non-stop for for most of this series like there's not like it's it's hard for him to catch a break in that regard like that's that's pretty rough yeah i mean we really saw the lakers kind of bully and dominate um, the grizzlies on the interior uh, especially in in game seven and i thought it was i thought the games that the lakers blew the grizzlies out so we're talking game three and game seven here especially um they got really snowbally you know like the grizzlies just weren't able to get clean looks at the rim and they weren't able to hit threes and then things kind of just got worse as the their offensive shot attempts became increasingly more desperate um, mm-hmm. and i just don't think that's going to happen against the warriors uh, the warriors have significantly better comeback ability um you know with how dynamic their offense is and and how they they're not just set into one way of creating shots um i mean well they kind of are it just in in terms of like curry's off ball brilliance but there's not like a way that you can effectively defend that yeah so i i uh i'm a little concerned from the lakers perspective um not saying that i'm i would pick them to win this series or anything but um you know they're I just think their ability to dominate the interior, um, that's got to really like surprise us. I think to to have a to give them a good chance of actually winning the series, they got to really turn off the offensive rebounding from Golden State, um, make sure they win the possession battle by a significant margin. I just feel like it's been it's been so many series now where we've wondered whether you can take advantage of golden state's like smaller front court and it just it just never happens like they just don't like even when the other player has when the other team has bigger players like it just yeah. doesn't matter like Draymond and Looney play a lot bigger and especially just seeing how they handled Sabonis um you know the only extra edge I'll give to AD is like um how much can he punish them for their lack of verticality how much can he just sort of like get up in the air and try to like, generate some cleaner looks um yeah you know, it's because besides that, it's like 
you know, Sabonis, I would have thought of him as a little bit more of a dangerous, like interior scorer, like at least against strength kind of thing. Because AD is not going to be pretty, pretty ground bound though. Yeah, that's um, that's what I mean. That's why AD is like that's the edge I could see him having. I thought that Sabonis was going to be too strong for Looney, and so AD is not going to be too strong for anyone in this series. Like both of those guys are capable of bodying him. Um, yeah. So that's definitely going to be something interesting to watch. They don't really have a backup big though. Like there's not like Jonathan Kaminga mm-hmm. is the closest thing. Like Jamichael Green's on the bench if if there's foul trouble or something like that. But like. And I, I'm kind of. I don't. I don't think Jamichael Green's gonna do anything against Davis. No, I'm just saying, like, if like who you know who who would, like who would be guarding him in the event where those guys are on the floor. But we didn't see Kaminga or Green almost at all in that um in that first round series, and I don't think that's something that they're. Uh, <laughs> I don't think that's something that the Warriors are hoping to see at all. But obviously, the Lakers, you know, would would love yeah. to see plenty of Jamichael Green or Jonathan Kaminga in the series. The Lakers did like going small, um, putting LeBron at the five and Rui at the four against the Grizzlies. That's kind of their go-to lineup <clears throat> when Davis yeah. was off the floor. I'm not sure if they can do that against the Warriors. Yeah, have fun um, against like the Draymond Green at five. That's just like there's not an advantage yeah. to gain there. Like you're playing into their hands. Yeah, yeah, that's like that's their favorite lineup. Like oh, like thank you. <laughs> now we can play like uh, now we can like you know not be pun- like not have pool punished as much defensively like it's I don't I don't see them winning that advantage. The one edge I will give to the Lakers though is that Golden State does foul. You know that's mm-hmm. like um, they foul they about yeah, but but they like the point of attack defense in LA is so bad. I don't see them forcing turnovers. That's that's a, like that's something that I don't see Golden State getting punished for because who's getting those steals outside of outside of Vando? Like they're good on the back line, but like that's yeah. not they didn't force turnovers at all <clears> during <throat> the year. Like they're they're one of they're like they're one of the least turnover forcing teams in the NBA. So I see no edge there, but I do see. Golden State fouling 20 times per 100, 22 in their first round series. They actually fouled more. Um, but LA did not get to the line against Memphis. That's like, we thought that's how they were going to beat Memphis or would be conditional to them beating Memphis, but they didn't really need to. They like, they, uh, 17 free throw attempts per game against Memphis down from 26 per game. Uh, sorry, not per game per 100, but that's still like, like Memphis is not it's a very fouly team, despite what people think. I think we were just like, oh, Jaron Jackson Jr. has foul problems. But when I was looking at it later, I was like, Memphis was like a bottom 10 uh, fouls per game. Turns anyway, out it's just so. him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and he didn't, and he stayed out of foul trouble uh, mm. in that series. It just didn't matter because they didn't have any other bigs. We really, everyone really just glossed over the fact that Memphis did not have a front court. We're like, yeah, maybe that doesn't matter. Maybe it's fine that yeah, they only have like one. That. But and and like you know, like we'll take that loss. But also, <laughs> everyone wanted to skip over that. Even people like who were picking LA, it was more because they liked LA. It wasn't like everyone kind of glossed over. Maybe you need more than one functional NBA big in a playoff series. We had but too sh- much, too much twenty twenty three brain. I mean, it's. Uh, they really didn't have a center like functionally at all. Like Xavier Tillman is six seven, um, yeah, and he's not much of an athlete. Like Memphis was playing with two power forwards, um, you know, yeah, doing like a, a weak side defender and and really more of just like a, a a wing who has a strong big frame and good center of gravity playing the five. Um, turns out you do need some kind of interior presence, yeah, um, and then. You know, with Jaws' injury and the inconsistent shooting, they didn't didn't have much of a perimeter game either. Um, so the, uh, yeah, the Warriors' defensive weakness is definitely guarding the perimeter. You know, they really struggled to defend small guards. But like, unless D'Angelo Russell really goes off, the Lakers can't necessarily exploit that either. Austin um, Reeves, 
I can see Austin yeah. Reeves like being a that's big true. bully in this series. Like he's he's established he's an ability to bully. Yeah, I mean that's that's what the Lakers need him to. Um, I, I well, I Austin Reeves isn't like a crazy athlete though. No, um, I mean he can, he can get up a little bit, but he's like he's pretty. Uh, he's kind of like uh, his movement style is. When I see people compare him to Ginobili, I'm like I kind of get it, but like Ginobili was like he played on the ball, was so light on his feet and you know so graceful, yeah. swooping in where where. Austin Reeves is, is clunky and a little bit slow. Austin Reeves reminds me of like a 2003 shooting guard. Um, he just really loves to get into the lane and yeah. you know, take that turnaround jumper or, you know, drop in a dump off pass. I think That's he's really like his game. He seems kind of like the version like there's this there's this kind of we've talked about this kind of high school prospect before, like OJ Mayo or, or Shabazz Muhammad or um, Lance Stevenson kind of types like these. He kind of has that the like how they should have tried to play in the NBA just be like kind of bully ball with some extra skills um I know that's like yeah I know you're not supposed to make like uh, cross-racial comparisons it's uh it's heresy but that's kind of like what I see is like oh if, if those guys played with a little bit less ego because Austin Reeves is always like he's excelled as a role player from day one in the NBA basically um so I you know I love I love to see him have a big series he's a really fun player to watch um and he's not someone that you can hide someone on. Unfortunately, as long as Vando's on the court, you don't have to hide anyone on on Austin Reeves. Like you can you can stash someone on Vando and devote more defensive there. It'd be cool to see. Like, do you think Austin Reeves can bully Clay Thompson? Like, Clay Thompson does not have that leg strength he used to. Yeah, that's true. I mean, Clay Thompson does have a height advantage, may have a wingspan yeah. advantage. Um, so I think he can draw fouls though. It's probably not a not a matchup that you want to go to often, mm. but it might be there. You got a pick for this series? Yeah, I'm going to go with the Warriors. Um, I just think the defensive versatility, um, I think Steph is the best player in the series by a pretty significant margin uh, with the way he's playing right now. And I don't know. I just, I've just i seen enough from Klay Thompson. Um, Andrew Wiggins has been pretty up and down. He was really bad in Game 7. But um, you know, overall, for the, the entirety of the Kings series, he was solid, um, really high level defensively. Just the offense was kind of up and down. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I think the Warriors have just shown time and time again they can put three non-shooters on the floor um, for defense sake and still have a pretty good offense, you know? Yeah, and I or just, they can put three I, non-defenders on the floor for offense's sake and have their have their back line like clean everything up. That's, I think, the coolest yeah. thing about this version of the Warriors, just that we can shift offense to defense without you being able to really punish us too much, which means we can put anyone on the floor, which is, like, that's crazy. That's, like, that's typically the kind of thing that dooms you in the playoffs is, like, that lineup that can't do that. And the Warriors just seem to not have that problem. Yeah. The one thing I will say is I don't really see this being a Gary Payton series. Um I don't know that they really need him. I mean, yeah. all of the all of the Lakers' best players that you want your strongest defenders on are like six eight and above. Um, so, you know, they don't necessarily have a perimeter guy that you really need to chase around and make sure that they're not uh, getting open looks. Yeah. So, does that mean they play Jordan Poole more? Um, is Dante Divincenzo? I mean, he's already playing a lot, but um, is he out there more often? I I don't know what they do. That's that's the one hole in their rotation where they're gonna have to fill it with someone maybe well, they, Jerome. I, I don't know who goes out there i mean they have five guys who play over 30 minutes a game and then after that i feel like i feel like the next 
four players can be used interchangeably based on matchup. I think you can boost Jordan Poole's minutes. I think you can boost Dante DiVincenzo's minutes. You can boost Gary Payton's minutes. Moses Moody is where it starts getting a little bit uh, fuzzy, I think, though, you know, he shot the yeah, ball well in round one. But And then, like, Jonathan Kaminga lurks at the at the edge of the sort of rotation where you could see i don't know i i feel like you want shooting against the lakers and spacing yeah but i'm saying i like i mean more in general like if you needed an injection of sort of like size and and physicality like kaminga would be an option so i don't i'm not that concerned about the the like their bench because i think any of those guys can scale up or scale down. It's not like controversial if Dante DiVincenzo only plays uh, 10 minutes per game or, or Gary Payton the second. Um, and I think you can play Draymond and Kevin Looney even more minutes kind of thing. They played Steph Curry yeah. almost 40 minutes a game in that series. So, I mean, that's maybe something to keep an eye on. But Wiggins can play. The, I don't even know why they sub off Wiggins. Like, he, he has he's never lost yeah. his breath in his whole life. No. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's only at 32 minutes a game. I mean, I feel like he should be getting star-level playoff minutes, like 38 minutes He's a at 35 in this series, so he, he boosted that a little bit. Oh, I'm looking at regular season. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. That, so yeah, long. but if, if, if they okay. need to, if it doesn't... Yeah, okay, let's move on to the next... I got Warriors in either five or six. Oh, I'm, I don't think it'll be five. Um, I, I don't like the matchup. I really don't like it. And like it. I don't either. I'm, I'm going to give the Lakers two games, though, I think. Uh, I, Warriors in six. Yeah, I think that's the safest, safest, safest Maybe bet. Seven. I just like to be a little yeah. edgy and be like, gentlemen, sweep. All right, so we're going to move to the New York Knicks versus the Miami Heat. Uh, we already have one game in this series. It went in the Heat's favor, but Jimmy Butler did suffer an ankle injury in that. He got tangled up with uh, Josh Hart on a sort of unfortunate fall. I saw some people calling the fall dirty. I even saw someone post a video of like, freezing it and being like look josh hart raises his legs like he just fell down and fell down normal you don't have to freeze frame it and like reconstruct and create a narrative like yeah. guys don't like i think some i think some people were saying it's a flop so it's not necessarily like it was oh, dirty. Sh- it was just more unnecessary yeah but still and... a pretty normal basketball play that we see all the time like it's uh yeah, it's true. unfortunate that an ankle got tangled up in there but hopefully jimmy butler is okay and they still managed to pull off a victory in game one. What are your initial thoughts of of this matchup? This is the fifth seed versus the eighth seed. Yeah. So I guess my initial thoughts are, I was pretty surprised. Uh, The heat were kind of able to maintain, you know, their, their kind of space it out offense with Jimmy Butler, just like relentlessly attacking um, and have that work fairly effectively. I mean, neither team was awesome in this, this game one offensively, but um, you know, like that's this kind of what the heat were doing all of the first series against the Bucks, and they, they kind of just maintained it. And the Knicks didn't seem to have many answers. Yeah, I've got, a, I've got a note there, too. And just, like, it's very clear that Lowry, Kevin Love, and Gabe Vincent especially just needed jack shots. Like, that's their offensive strategy right now. So those three just need to, yeah. like, caught, like, be extremely aggressive from three in order for this Miami improvised machine to work. Like, it feels like they just put this machine together on the fly, and they're just like, you know, they're going to run it until it – until it destroys itself or, you know, crashes into the ground. Because um, they're going to live or die by three-point shooting around Jimmy Butler excellence. And that means Jimmy Butler has to be excellent, and those guys need to shoot a ton of threes because that's really all there is to Miami's offense. Yeah, um, Jalen Brunson took a lot of shots. Um, Josh Hart took a ton of shots. Uh, neither of them were particularly efficient in this game. 
I mean, the the Knicks were, uh, I think it is important to mention the Knicks were missing Julius Randle uh, for this first game. So I know you aren't a big Julius Randle fan, uh, but you have to admit that, you know, a guy who's normally a significant part of their their offense was gone. Also, no one on the Knicks could hit a three. Do I have to admit that, though? Do I have to admit it? (laughs) Not sure I'm going to do it. So the crazy thing about the first round series between the Knicks and the Cavs, I thought, is you know, everyone, there was so much talk about how bad the Cavs offense was, but from an offensive rating perspective, the Knicks offense was actually worse than yeah. the Cavaliers offense, Yeah, you know, as, as clunky and awful as the Cavs looked in, um, you know, the shooting was really bad. Jalen Brunson was 0 for 7 in game one. So it's kind of continuing here. Um, well, Barrett's I mean, watching the Cavs series, well. it was like Jalen Brunson would kind of have these like fits and starts. Like, you yeah. know, like he couldn't score efficiently over a whole game, but he would he would kind of bust out for these heroic moments. So I think people for watching, they're like, Jalen Brunson is so awesome. And he was it was impressive that he was able to sort of keep scoring against a really elite defense, even albeit at a albeit a, at a lower efficiency. But what that really was was just like them being able to really clamp down Jalen Brunson, just not all the time. Um, and in a muck it out series, Jalen Brunson is the kind of scorer you like to have where he can sort of like generate pretty resilient medium to low efficiency offense when you can't get anything better. Really great bailout score. Butler for his standards didn't have to do a whole lot in game one for the heat to still win for his, for his standards. He didn't have to drop 40 or 50 points. Yeah. Yeah. You know, 25 on a bunch of rebounds, but you know, not necessarily being a hugely impactful playmaker or anything. I just, you're only taking 16 Gabe shots. Hit some shots. Yeah. Gave Vincent some shots. Lowry, I thought, was pretty good off the bench. Yeah. The Heat. Yeah. They just need to, they can barely scrape together an eight man rotation of functional players. But, you know, most of those players, um, maybe with the exception of Duncan Robinson, have been playing fairly well. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Duncan so. Robinson did get up. Did he played 12 minutes in game one? That's like a. Yeah. He's been playing I didn't notice. <laughs> um, ever since the Oladipo injury. He's yeah. Been filling those. And, and Tyler Hero. They lost their yeah. entire shooting guard rotation. Well, there, Oladipo was playing because of the hero injury. Yeah, exactly. So. <laughs> Next man up, as they like to say. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. There's some uh, like I-, I think the Knicks need to be a good offense to win this series. If this ends up being like a mucky thing, that's that's in Miami's favor because Miami's actually good at defense. And um, and New York has been Tom Thibodeau swears he had a I read a quote by Tom Thibodeau. He does that. He's just like, yeah. I don't really pay attention to defensive rating. I pay attention to these four numbers that we're good at. <laughs> like if you only look at it from this specific lens that I am telling you, you have to look at it. Th- then we're a really yeah. good defense. It's like, I mean, he's not like, you know, they do. They do, you know, hold teams below their um, expected effective field goal percentage. Like uh, they do. They, they won the battle in the paint against Cleveland on the back of, of Mitchell Robinson. So I, I think there's there's something to say for that, like um, winning the physical paint battle. But um, I, th- I don't like, <laughs> I don't know. It just still seemed like a bit of a, a silly quote. And and they're going to need to score at a much better, much better rate than they have at any point in these playoffs to be the victor in this series. They, they picked up right where they left off in terms of just being a pretty yeah. gunky playoff offense. And I don't think Julius well, Randle helps you that much in that regard. Where does the offense come from? You know, because in the first round, they're relying on Josh Hart to be their main floor spacer, um, you know, mm-hmm. main catch and catch and shoot floor spacer. And and he's an inconsistent three point shooter, um, as as I know all too well with his time spent in Portland. RJ really isn't shooting it. 
Well, he was good. He was good in game one. Barrett. Yeah. Uh, he took five threes and hit one of them. Oh, you I just mean purely as a sorry, I, just shooting the ball. Yeah, I know he's not going to shoot the ball well. I just mean yeah, like he no, had need, he had a good overall game in game one. Yeah, no, you need some sort of baseline level of competence when it comes to spacing the floor. Otherwise, Jalen Brunson's going to shoot thirty eight percent every game. Yeah, yeah. Uh, where in terms of where I think the offense is going to come from, assuming they don't get Julius Randle back, it's like a the thing they've done really well this whole playoffs is offensive rebound the ball. You know, like Mitchell Robinson yeah. is low key, you know, trying to steal the offensive rebounding uh, championship belt from Steven Adams right now. While Steven Adams is is hurt in Memphis of the playoffs. He's like it was pretty eye popping how dominant Mitchell Robinson was able to be against two other bigs. Um, and I don't think he's going to stop. Like how many offensive re- he had five offensive rebounds in game one. Josh yeah. Hart is going to help him out there and grab some offensive boards. Um, but I think we need to see a little bit more from Quentin Grimes and Emmanuel quickly. Like they, um, they were a big part of making um, New York's offense smooth, run smooth with her just sort of like extra passing. Um, Quentin Grimes just being a good decision maker, Emmanuel quickly being able to like shoot it a bit and also occasionally uh, pressure the rim a little bit as like a, you know, as a secondary playmaker type. He was even able to carry the offense for like stretches when Brunson was out and he's been close to a zero so far in these playoffs. So um, getting yeah. improved play from that part of their rotation, I think is really, really important. Quentin Grimes isn't even starting anymore. I do think he's got some injury problems, but um, that's where I'd look in terms of the filling out and just making everything operate smoother than just like Jalen Brunson, like attacking the paint on every single play. Cause I don't think that's like that sustainable, especially with Bam Adebayo on the other side. And not, when, frisky yeah, not, when Bam is, not when Bam can, can kind of hang out down there and isn't forced to come out to the perimeter and chase people around. Or if he's coming out on the perimeter and guarding Jalen Brunson, I think that's like, yeah, that's, that's going to like, that <laughs> kind of cuts the head off of the snake. So I wouldn't like, I don't know. This is going to be a mucky series. I, I kind of like it. Uh, it's got kind of a collegey um, feel to it with, with how insane some of the Knicks fans are. Yeah. Um, just, you know, the face paint and the screaming. And yeah. Yeah. New things. York being in the playoffs is fun. There's, there's no doubt. And then just the physicality and the, the, uh, the low shot quality overall <laughs> that we're going to see throughout the series. So. Yeah. I think we, so similar to what we we're saying in LA versus uh, golden state. I think we've got, um, we've got uh, a Miami team that doesn't really need the rim to score that much. And which is a shame because that's what New York defends best is again, like Mitchell Robinson and a lot of like strengths and size around him. So we're that's Miami's one of, gonna... one of uh, coach Tibbs four things, right? Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. Miami doesn't need the rim. They're another. They're another team that didn't rely on it much at all during the regular season. Uh, but I think they'll concede the paint battle. Like New York's going to win that. So I think Tibbs will mm-hmm. keep getting to check his personal defensive boxes as he watches the team a lose career in television. Way. <laughs> you just just look at this from my perspective and ignore all context. Yeah. It makes sense. Yeah, uh, Miami also doesn't turn the ball over, which is like another place that New York likes to get extra offense from. New York's one of those like they're kind of like the Grizzlies, where they sort of they want to they boost their offense with all the accoutrements. They get offensive rebounds, they get a lot of turnovers, and they like boost their offensive efficiency because of that. But their base offense is not that great, so I think that's unfortunate for New York is that Miami protects the ball very well. You got a pick. I mean, we're it. We've seen game one, so it's a cheating slightly, but it's it's a, it's a bit tough, I think, because like I just think like the Heat are gonna be up and down. At some point, they're gonna cool off from three, and then I feel like we might see how bad this offense can really be. I think that I mm. like I'm gonna go. Oh, and then Jimmy Butler's ankle injury is a big thing. I think if either of those things 
um, do not work out in Miami's favor. I think New York will win this series, but assuming those things do work out, I'm going to go Miami in seven. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was really trying to consider this before. I just think that the Knicks are going to have a big advantage in the interior. And I was kind of questioning whether the heat are going to be able to sustain. Um, I mean, obviously they're not going to shoot 45% from three for the whole series like they did against the Bucks. Yeah. Uh, but just sustain a high level of floor spacing. And also, you know, I, uh, I don't normally love Julius Randle, but I sure like him a lot more when he's being guarded by Kevin Love. So, oh um, yeah, true that. <laughs> Let's um, yeah, and it would be good for him. This is a much better series for him. So hopefully he comes back healthy. I don't know. Maybe maybe uh, Julius Randle will actually make a pretty significant difference in their their ability to create efficient offense when he, he's on the floor. He's also so strong. So it's another it's another matchup that like um like Jimmy Butler can't bully. It's another guy that's like you know um can can physically compete with with bam and i think in this like if this is going to be as mucky a series as we predicted to be it's really good to just have like strong guys with good hands and i think julius randall and julius randall still just like he can get hot from three too like even if things aren't working mm-hmm. out for him overall like julius randall can go on a can go on a heater with the best of them so i mean yeah, yeah i think that'll be interesting to watch but ultimately i'm gonna I'm going to go with the team that can actually space the floor and run kind of a functional offense, at least when the, when the shots are falling. Um, and I'll say provided Butler is healthy, heat and six. Yeah, well, they as long as they can do that, <laughs> as long as they can keep that up, I agree. Okay, let's go. Let's bounce to our, our last series. Final series. Yeah. yeah. I feel like Probably we keep leaving Boston the for the end. one, but... Well, assuming on Joel and Joel Embiid's health. So if anyone's yeah. not aware of that, is Joel Embiid has a knee injury and is not scheduled to play in game one, I believe, still. Yeah, he's going to miss game one at least. And then um, I guess they'll they'll kind of play it by ear uh, yeah. and see, see how things progress after that. And the uh, Philadelphia 76ers are a much more top-heavy team than the Boston Celtics. You know, you, you really... Mm-hmm. Even though well, every every roster in the NBA is, but. that's that's true. That's true. I mean, as well as um, Tyrese Maxey and Tobias Harris played in the first round. Um, I don't think that anyone's expecting Tyrese Maxey and Tobias Harris um, is going to be enough to beat the Boston Celtics. And then James Harden, like you know, you kind of if beads out, you really feel for him because this is just this is going to be a series where they might be able to throw a ton of defensive attention at him and that is like and this is a team that has so many defenders to put on Harden like he's going to be guarded by Marcus Smart Derek White Jason Tatum Jalen Brown like that's that sucks like and then people are going to be accusing him of of choking and just like uh, I mean did he really have did he really have a shot again if MB doesn't play if they've got to focus all their defensive attention on MB that's when I expect James Harden to come through and have a really big series attacking from the perimeter and opening things up for people but he did not have a good scoring series in against the Nets and mm-hmm. I'm a little bit concerned about what's gonna happen in this one again big fella please get healthy and play because. He's probably going to win MVP this year. Or has it been like announced that he will win MVP yet? I'm not. I'm not sure, but um, I think it's safe. Well, just based on, you know, um, people who have announced their vote publicly yeah. through Twitter, Embiid has had a pretty significant uh, portion of that. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, so yeah, I don't really. It's it's hard to. It's really hard for us to project this series because we don't know if the best player in the whole series is going to play at all, and that's. Um, that that's a big deal. And unlike, you know, if Jason Tatum wasn't playing, 
I, you know, you could still look at Boston and, and think I, of stuff they I could do. I would challenge that. I'm not sure if I would say Embiid is the best player in this series. I know you're a big, you're a big Tatum guy. Well, I'm a big Embiid regular season guy too. I just, um, I just think the Celtics have the personnel to make Embiid's life really difficult and the 76ers aren't going to be able to guard Tatum. Um, yeah. So it's not necessarily like taking their skills in a vacuum and saying Tatum is better. I just think he's better equipped to have um, the better series in this in this instance. Yeah. I mean, Al Horford is 36 years old and there's been this like narrative that Horford knows how to mess with Embiid. And I do think the right matchup for Embiid is like a smarter player. Like, you know, you, you can, you can, uh, one, one who can goad Embiid into poor decisions. Cause that's still Embiid's weakness. I think overall is just decision-making. Um, you, mm-hmm. I, I, the only thing about that is that like whenever a player's at that age, you just wait for them to just fall off one series. I remember watching the Boston Celtics play the Toronto Raptors in 2020 and the back. This is when the Raptors had Marcus Gasol absolutely just gone on a tour de force and guarded everyone in the world in 2019 over to a championship and then won the European championship guarding like every good European big man as well. And just looking like one of the most impressive stretches of basketball defense I've ever seen. And then he came back in that series the next year and couldn't guard. Um, oh, why am I ever forgetting? Couldn't guard Daniel Thice. Like Daniel Thice was like just ripping him up with rolls to the rim. And you're like, Marcus Gasol's done. Like he, he still played another couple of years, but he was done being like a, a guy who could sort of like guard the high pick and roll. We just, he got sliced up yeah. in that. So you, I, I do worry about that a little bit with Al Horford is that at some point the wheels come off and it, the playoff series, like sometimes you hide during the regular season and then we see it. They didn't need Al Horford a huge ton in, um in the first round series against Atlanta. And he, he looks fine defensively. So I'm not predicting that. I would just be like, don't expect Al Horford to guard Joel Embiid. Well, no matter what, I think that's a question that should be refreshed every series as Al Horford continues to age. But if, if Embiid's got a yeah. knee injury, then different different story well especially with how much um Embiid's pull-up jump shot has really improved you know yeah. Harford isn't going to be able to contest that well um so maybe he doesn't get entirely bullied in the post but also Embiid can kind of just shoot and have a relatively open look whenever he wants one yeah so Grant Williams had some good moments in the past too against um Embiid but again Embiid's a different player now in how he attacks shut the nail Grant Williams has some moments. Ask any Celtics fan. Like he just like he stood him up in the post a couple times. I know. I'm I not. Just, I I don't believe in Grant Williams. I feel like it was a, it was a it was a trick that kind of worked temporarily until people figured it out, and now it doesn't work. Yeah, anymore. that could be that could be true. Something to continue to monitor. Uh, what do you think Philly's like? What what's an edge Philly could gain here if if they don't have MB? Like... I think Maxi. Um, I think there's a possibility Maxi does have a big series even without Embiid um, yep. being at his full, fully realized self. Um, you know, Derek White's been really solid this year, um, but that's kind of the one guy the Celtics have who's capable of matching up against those really quick, really athletic guards. Um, Marcus Smart, I think it's fair to say, has lost half a step since his prime. Um, that's not really the matchup that you want him dealing with all the time uh and all it takes is like one screen to get maxi loose i I do think he'll have plenty of opportunity to attack the rim um and when rob williams isn't on the floor uh the ability to finish for a guy of his caliber i think is going to be there Um, yeah i will all all those defensive all those incredible defensive guards on the boston celtics roster 
they're they're not the quickest footed guards and maxi is one of the fastest players in the nba and makes a living kind of like that's like i mean yeah i watched him tear up like you you see him tear apart guys you think as good defenders just because like oh they're not actually that like they're not awesome athletes yeah yeah and just like they they, they're good because they're like versatile and can body guys and that's the thing about and the the one thing i will will say about Derek white um who is probably going to be selected to an all defensive first team this year i think we both had him at least on our first or second team um in our picks and he has been awesome uh but it's not he's not a guy who's like a crazy athlete either um i think that he's except in transition well yeah (laughs) i think he's really good at recovering um he has incredible hands he's great at like passing lanes he's great at picking the ball away from like larger players who try to back him down he's really good at that thing where he kind of lets guys uh like either back him down or drive past him a little bit um and then just like getting like blocks or strips like on the way up as they're going into their shot attempt yeah um but he's not a guy that i personally see as like incredible matchup for maxi um no. Yeah, Derek White's kind of like a, a slightly smaller, more cerebral Danny Green. Um, yeah. Know, he's like, he, he he's athletic in some facets of the game, but it's not like, a, he's not like a quick twitchy athlete or something like that. But I mean, he's had some great come, come from behind blocks in this series. And he's been like, you know, they didn't have, he's like been there. He's been like a source of rim protection for them a little bit in this series. It's like Derek White rules. Like he's such a good all around yeah. guy who can just find little ways to uh, contribute even even when he, he's not yeah, scoring he, well and he is scoring he kind of right shows now. you what you can do even if you're not an athlete if you just have like really elite awareness of like how a play is going to develop and then mm-hmm. what position to get yourself into in order to counter what the offense is doing yeah um, he might he might be the best guard in the nba at at doing that right now and if you like randomly generated me a, a team and I didn't and didn't know um, and didn't tell me who they were and I just get to pick like the fourth or fifth starter or something like that, not knowing who the other players were like Derek White would be someone who I'd have on that list of like, well, I know that he's going to fill in some gaps. If there's going to be gaps on this randomly generated roster, I know Derek White will probably be able to fill in some of them. Just has that great like, yeah, cerebral game and, and very versatile. Ugh, yeah, just trying to like and just looking at the philly philly roster um and we're looking for answers on the philly roster yeah like they can dominate the glass only if Embiid's back um Mm. the (laughs) i mean pj tucker is probably going to get the tatum matchup um i imagine melton is probably gonna get the jalen brown matchup both those guys are going to be playing at a pretty significant uh size disadvantage even though they're solid defenders yeah well, I guess like I l- let's not belabor this series then. Like let's just say like if Embiid comes back and is able to completely demolish Boston with his scoring, then Philly has yeah. a really good chance of winning this series. If Embiid's out, this series is gonna it's it's gonna be a sweep or something close to it. Like there's not much to discuss. I don't think there's a an edge yeah. here for. And it's not like they've got some like Eric Spolestra, Nick Nurse style coach who's gonna come up with all like you know Rick Carlisle gonna come in and and mess up a superior opponent. Like this is not what Doc does. So um like and B's a big question mark makes it impossible to project the series. I would really like to see these two teams play at full strength because. It's sort of like high-end offensive firepower and rim protection versus the, you know, team depth and do-it-all. You know, I'm actually, I'm not going to go with a sweep even if Embiid doesn't come back and is 100% healthy. I think the 76ers are going to win a couple of games in an otherwise pretty uncompetitive series. 
um, just because the Celtics' consistency against the Hawks was pretty poor. Um, yeah. I thought their just defensive effort, um, especially later in that series, was just really bad through the yeah. first three quarters. And then they kind of like, it's late in the game and the Hawks, you know, are up by five and they're like, oh, wait, we have to win, <laughs> you know, and, th- and then they'll kind of ramp it up. But um, I don't know. I mean, this was the the same thing that, that troubled the Celtics year after year uh, before Ivan Yudoka was hired. And, you know, it's just like, I don't, I, maybe effort's an, an unfair way to put it, but like just the way that the team locks in and plays as a cohesive unit is just very up and down and yeah. not very consistent. Um, and Tatum's been really up and down too offensively in the playoffs so far. So yeah, I think Philly will win a game, maybe two games if Embiid comes back and is awesome. Um, but ultimately Boston will get it done. Yeah, and pull themselves together for four games in the series. And if James Harden can find a way to actually do some do some scoring damage, I think that's another thing that could win them a game. But um, again, I'm being I'm I'm being the bold one. I'm going I'm I'm picking a sweep unless Embiid comes back. Okay, all right. Yeah, I'll say I'll say five games of Embiid is does not return to full health in six if he does. Okay, solid, solid. All right, I guess that any any wrap up thoughts on this second round. Well, I know you had the Bucks in your finals matchup. Um, <laughs> yeah, I had the Grizzlies. Who would you take out of the East now, uh, knowing what we know now? Boston well, and and the Bucks no longer being an option. Yeah, but I'm yeah. still picking okay. the Bucks. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, I, I don't I don't see another team having the the sort of like high end or the or the depth. I just think Boston is kind of in a class of their own. And the only thing that was supposed to stand in their way was Joel Embiid. And now that's maybe not going to happen. So uh, yeah, I'm going Boston Denver finals. And I'm, that I think might change my finals pick to uh, my champion. To Boston? To, no, to Denver, to Denver. Okay. Yeah. You don't think uh, Boston's going to be able to handle the Jokic matchup? No, they, they weren't able to in the regular season. So yeah. I don't, I don't blame you. I think it's a bad matchup for them. Not that I don't think Boston's okay. really good. I just like I like Denver in that specific matchup. I think if if it was if, if Phoenix beats Denver, you know, like I'd, I'd switch over to Boston to win that. I'm gonna go with the Warriors. All right, the, the champs. Yeah, why not? I'm sorry. I I'm gonna continue doubting the Nuggets until we see it happen. Yeah, fair enough. So. The war, the Warriors. We've seen it happen. So, and I yeah. like their versatility a lot more than their versatility is just. It's amazing. So I just think that game seven spoke volumes. It's like um, we all know there's going to be a moment where the young up and coming upstart team that hasn't won before what wins because it's going to happen at some point. It's inevitable. Yeah. But um, I just thought that game seven against the Kings for the Warriors were were so dominant and just like made all the right plays and and prevented their opponent from making any of the right plays uh, really spoke to how. This team still has a level that they can get to when they need to. Yeah. What I, why I like Denver over Golden State is just like we just saw Golden State go seven games against like a really, really great offense and a really joke defense. And I think Denver can do a lot of the same damage that um, Sacramento was able to do offensively to Golden State and ju- then just play sort of competent defense. And I think that is just going to be a, yeah. a huge game changer where there's just very little Sacramento was able to do, especially as the series went on, to bother Golden State. Like by the end of it, it's just like, yeah. they, you know, they they opted for even more offense playing Trey Lyles and, and Terrence Davis and less minutes for Davion Mitchell and less minutes and for I'll- Alex Len. Um, and ultimately, like you, Denver is not going to give up like the absolutely insane rebound margins that uh, Sacramento was giving up to Golden State. Yeah, 
Um, I just yeah, a lot of those edges I just don't think will be available against Denver. But that being said, I don't know. Golden State's really good, so there's yeah. and they're a different kind of team. They don't have the they don't quite maybe have the rim pressure that Fox gives you. But I don't think they need it. I think like I think I just think the two man game with uh, Murray and Jokic is so much more sustainable than what the than what Sacramento was ultimately able to do when when they figured out Sabonis. And you can't leave Nicola. You can't leave the big thing that handicapped Sacramento is just like they let um, they left Sabonis <laughs> open at the foul line. You do that. You can't like you yeah. do that to Jokic and like he'll be like, okay, I don't really want to do this, but I'm going to score seventy points. Like. Yeah, like like make Jokic take like thirty foul line jumpers and and see see where that gets you because you couldn't get Sabonis even at the, like he just looked so reluctant like uh, I coach told me I had to shoot this so I'm gonna do it but <laughs> I have no belief in myself right now disappointing series for Sabonis even though he sort of fixed his stat line a little bit in the last game it was just like mm-hmm. I expected him to be a little bit more you know I can't say more aggressive because he was overly aggressive as a as a as a pain scorer look look we're finishing this podcast the way we started it we're going right back to wanting to talk about golden state and sacramento it was a fun series you can't blame us it was i actually thought sabonis got worse as the series went on like yeah his numbers recovered a little bit uh after the disastrous game three and four but um his rebounding advantage over Looney just progressively got worse. Flipped by the end of it. Like that was, that was crazy. There was at one point, like they grabbed all those rebounds with Sabonis off the floor at one point. And then they subbed Sabonis back in like, all right, I guess that's that fun time is over for the Warriors. And then Looney grabbed two offensive rebounds right out of Sabonis's teeth in the next like three possessions. And it was just like, like, never mind. I guess like, I guess the party continues all the way to the, um, to the buzzer. All right, everyone. Well, thank you for joining us for this second round preview enjoy the second round and um we here at the underhand free throw just want to remind you very politely that ball is life thanks for listening we'll see you next time